I'd like to welcome everyone to the Florence Weinberg Show. Frank McKay here with Dr. Florence Byam Weinberg, and she introduced uh, her 16th book last week, and that's called The Choice. And it was so exciting uh, to to hear this uh, this sneak preview of uh, of a book that's out. It's not even a sneak preview, a preview for many of us, and uh, and just uh, just wonderful. And today, maybe we're going to get an excerpt uh, from the book. Dr. Weinberg, how are you? I'm doing quite well, thank you, Frank, and I hope you are too. I, I am. And uh, is that what you have in store uh, for us today? Is uh, uh, maybe an excerpt from the book? Yes, uh, that's right. Yeah, last time I uh, uh, talked about the generalities of what's contained in the book, uh, the history behind the book, which is all accurate, and the personnel, who are all real people. Uh, and today I would like to illustrate to people uh, who might uh, be interested in reading, actually reading the book, what my style is like and what my people, how my people behave. And the scene here, the scene here opens with a conversation between Jean de Sponde, who is the protagonist of this book, who is the kingmaker, <laughs> and who eventually will convince uh, the king, the Protestant king of Navarre, um, Navarra now in Spain and then in France, will um, convince him to convert to Catholicism in order to inherit the throne of France, which was only available to uh, Roman Catholics then. And if France were still a kingdom, it would still be the same way. Yeah. But the king is asking Jean to go into Paris to spy for him. And, of course, Jean has never done anything similar. Uh, he was a student uh, who, whom the king took in and trained as a knight and needed his expertise as a lawyer and as a tennis player because the king was a fanatic tennis player. Uh, and uh, that was it. But now the king is asking him to do something extremely dangerous. So I'll, I'll begin without further ado to, uh, to go into the story. And it is the king speaking. Very good. I need you to get inside Paris, Jean. I must find out what's happening there. I think we've interrupted their supply lines to some extent, so they may be hungrier than they would like. I need to know that. A hungry population is more likely to come over to my side than a well-fed one. Also, of course, I want you to find out just who are the Fez, the local leaders of the League, and how they've organized the city. Finally, I need you to contact the Politique. The Politique? Sire? Yes, the Catholics who remain loyal to King Henri III, Henry III. I must find out if they are willing to come to my aid in one way or another, either as additional spies from within or as open and vocal opposition to the Guise government in Paris. Will you take this risk for me, Jean? Okay, now that contains a lot of information that you don't have. First of all, the Guise are a group, it's a whole family uh, of um, fanatical Catholics from eastern, the eastern part of France, who have actually usurped the government from the uh, legitimate king of France, who was Henry III, because Henry III uh, is uh, hesitating, he would like to to have a peace pact, perhaps, with the king of Navarre, the Protestant king. The problem is that Protestantism is spreading throughout Europe, uh, having, uh, having, a, um, having success in taking over large swaths, uh, especially in Germany and Switzerland and in the, in the south of France. And, of course, Navarre, Navarra uh, is in the south of France at the time. 
And the king of Navarra is, of course, Protestant, as are all of his uh, citizens. And he is the leader of the Protestant uh, army uh, fighting the Catholics who are now led by the Guise family. And they have actually exiled Henry III outside Paris and have taken over the government. And there are 16 uh, quarters, uh, quartiers, uh, in Paris, and there is a Guise uh, subsidiary um, deputy who is ruling each one of those quarters. And so Henry de, uh, Henri de Navarre, Henry of Navarre, the Protestant king, needs to know who they are and whether they are firmly on the side of the Guise or not. And, of course, also what is the status of the population of Paris, whether they're starving yet or not. And so he asks, uh, he asks uh, Jean to spy for him. And Jean now reacts. My heart was in my shoes. But see, my Béarnais accent will betray me at once. And the king replies, Spond, Spond, use your head. You speak Swiss German, that dialect they use on our eastern borders. You spent time there, and you know how they speak French. Pretend you're from Lorraine. Just use that accent and you'll get by. I need someone educated and intelligent for this job. And then uh, he says, come back later tonight, say about 10. I'll give you detailed instructions then. Yes, sir. I left his presence with dark foreboding. I arrived on foot in Paris a week later on the 20th, 23rd of November. Just ahead of me, I could see the Porte Saint-Jacques, the Saint-Jacques Gate, the southernmost gate in the fortified walls of the city. When I reached the gate, I accosted the guard and used my best imitation of a Strasbourg accent, the closest I had come to Lorraine, also presenting my bogus safe conduct letter that identified me as Guy de Toulle, the guides laughed at my speech until I drew myself up haughtily and told them my family was very close to the Guise. They waved me through. So he enters Paris then and is confused by the jumble of medieval streets and the, the dirt, the filth of the city where people threw their night, night soil, so-called, out of their chamber pots yeah. directly from their windows into the street. And um, he decides he's going to find a church because he thinks a priest will be more likely to guide him. He needs to find a tavern called the Cochon Bleu. The, the Blue Pig is the name of the tavern. <laughs> the little church was not far away. I entered and had to remind myself to take holy water and cross myself to genuflect toward the front of the church before seating myself in a dark corner on one of the pews. After all, I was supposed to be Catholic, a friend of the Guise family. I sat for a while, easing my tired feet, waiting for a beetle or a priest to appear. At last, a priest did cross the sanctuary behind the altar rail, and my sudden movement as I rose from my seat caught his eye before he could duck back into the vestry. He was a short man with a shock of graying hair, his lean but square-jawed face clean-shaven. Father, could you help me, please? I'm new in the city, just came in the port at the gate, Saint-Jacques, and I have no idea how to find anything in such a confusion of streets. I'm looking for the Cochon Bleu. The inn would be my starting point, point, according to my king's instructions. The priest speaks, You sound like an Easterner, but you look like a Southerner, and there's something a bit strange about that accent. Just where do you hail from? I lied. I'm from Toul, father, but my mother was from Toulouse. When I was little, I spoke like her, and my playmates and schoolma schoolmasters ridiculed me for it. There may still be some Toulouse in my speech. 
but never mind, Father, can you help me? So the, the priest again speaks, if it's the establishment I have in mind, you will walk as far as the Ile de la Cité, and he gives him all the, uh, all the directions how to get there, and he indeed finds it exactly where the priest had said. Uh, the priest's directions proved to be precise. The Cochon Bleu Tavern had a placard on the door announcing rooms to rent upstairs. I entered and sat on a bench at one of the long tables with six other customers. When the tavern keeper saw my sign, he nodded in my direction. He was fully occupied bringing wine, bread, and roast pork to a noisy group of men seated around a smaller table in the opposite corner of the inn. At last, the innkeeper came my way. He was visibly tired and disgusted with, with his customers and the world and gave me scant attention. Eh bien, well, I bridled at his gruff tone but voiced the phrase I had been instructed to say, the words that would identify me as an agent of Henri de Navarre. Do you happen to have any wine from Toul? Only white wine will do. Wine from Toul? Are you out of your... He stopped short in what had begun as an angry tirade. Ah, wine from Toul, white wine. If monsieur will follow me, I'll show him what we have in our cellars. This was the agreed-upon exchange. He had recognized me as someone sent from the legitimate successor to the throne of France. He jerked his chin toward the rear of the tavern, and I rose to follow him. I should say that uh, although a Protestant, uh, Henry of Navarre, Henri de Navarre, is actually uh, in the direct bloodline of the Valois dynasty as well as the Bourbon dynasty. And so he, he is the legitimate heir, but he is barred from becoming the king because of his religion. So those who are a bit more liberal uh, are partisans of Henry, uh, and the others uh, are, of course, fanatic uh, Catholics who uh, would rather die than see Henry uh, succeed to the throne. So he is uh, following the innkeeper. I obediently, follow, obediently followed him to a narrow staircase at the end of the hall, then up into darkness. As we passed by, he snatched a candle from its holder to give feeble light to our upward progress. We climbed two floors. He apologetically explained that the first floor, and of course that second floor in uh, this country, but uh, the, the floor above ground level is always the first floor in Europe. We climbed two floors. He apologetically explained that the first floor was rented out as a brothel. <laughs> Keep your door barred, because drunken customers sometimes climb too far and might burst in on you in the middle of the night. I'll send a boy with your food and wine. He'll knock like this. He rapped three times, paused, then added two quick raps. Take a nap if you wish. I'll get your food as soon as I can, but it might be two hours before I'll be free to come. He made, a, uh, he made a circuit of the room, and after he had left the tiny room, I examined the bed. It had a decent straw mattress with a heavy quilt laid over it to minimize scratching and a warm blanket. The pillow was disreputable, saturated with, with stale sweat, its odor too powerful to tolerate. I would sleep in my undergarments and use my rolled-up clothing as a pillow. Then, neglecting to bolt the door, I stripped off my jerkin, rolled it into a ball, and dropped on the bed. I was so exhausted from my journey that I hardly had time to toss the malodorous pillow on the floor before I was asleep, my cheek resting uncomfortably on a jerkin button. I didn't have the energy to change position. And I've, I've been in similar circumstances. <laughs> I was awakened by a knock on the door, three knocks, a pause, then two more. 
I had barely sat up, bumping my head on the sloping ceiling when a boy came in, bearing a tray, tray of food, bread, tea, and wine, and a generous slice of beef roast or perhaps horse meat with a chunk of yesterday's bread soaked in a ladleful of brown gravy. The delicious aroma woke me completely, and I leaped to my feet, groping in my jacket pocket for a coin to give the servant who had brought the food worthy of the gods. I, I finished the meal in short order, wishing for a glass of water to wash it all down, regretting the clear mountain waters of Moléon. That's, that's in Navarre, of course. I left the candles burning and lay back just for a moment, closing my eyes, thinking I would lock my door in a moment. I awoke with a start. From my position lying on my back with my head on my jacket, I could see that the candles had inexplicably burned down more than halfway, and I felt a presence of warmth next to me on the bed. I sat up halfway again, bumping my head on the ceiling. She was a delicate creature, scarcely more than a child. Her wispy dark hair curled around a heart-shaped face with high cheekbones, eyes indigo pools reflecting the candle flames. One thin arm wound around my neck, its hand stroking my right ear, the other hand busily threading its way through the opening in my underwear. I clutched her, rolling on my side, my teeth set, the temptation to enter her all but overwhelming. I doubt I would have resisted her, but I was unexpected, unexpected. Unexpectedly, I'm sorry, but I was unexpected, unexpectedly rescued. Two things happened simultaneously. With a sudden chill, I noticed she had released my neck with one arm and was now groping the pockets of my jerkin, and I heard a sharp rap on the door. Again, those three knocks, a pause, and then two more. I leaped to my feet, pulling the jerkin from under the gamine, carrying it looped over one arm. I stepped across to the door, stuffing my wilting penis back into my pants. <laughs> I opened the door to the innkeeper, who took in the scene with cynically raised eyebrows. You're from the provinces, of course. These women are experts in getting a man aroused before he knows what's happening. Then, when he's at the peak of ecstasy, they rob him, usually of something compromising, so they can blackmail him, or at the very least, all his money. Huh. So there is a conversation, obviously, between the innkeeper, and he, he uh, throws the girl out and threatens her if she ever comes back, telling her that Jean is uh, out of bounds for her or for any of the others. And then he tells Jean, I've got a map of the city by someone named Belforet. It's quite clear, though it doesn't give the finest details. Good enough to get you around. I'll show you on the map tomorrow, but for now, listen. And he gives him detailed instructions uh, of how to get to the meeting of the says, which is due to take place the following day. And so... Um, he explains things. He says, um, uh, there will be a general meeting of the says this Sunday. That's tomorrow. You need to be there. But how exposed will I be? Who will be there? Just the says? Or will there be a general gathering? There will be a crowd of the faithful there to hear the deliberations. You should be able to fit in without calling attention to yourself. What time? After Vespers service. And I'm skipping. Okay, here we go. Um, he goes through Paris, uh, and he gets to his destination. Vesper's service was half over, and I had spent most of it observing the congregation from the darkest corner I could find. The priest had preceded the service with a homily frightening in its violence, calling down the wrath of God upon the heretic servant of Satan, Henry of Navarre, and all those who serve him. 
his strident calls to vigilance and battle readiness drew answering mutterings from the and growls from members of the congregation. A far cry from Jesus' message in the Beatitudes. <laughs> the says entered the refectory first and established themselves at the head table. I was impressed with their apparent social standing. Mainly upper bourgeois lawyers, clergy, and wealth, wealthy merchants. These were the leaders of the community. The rest of us were a motley group, although working class people were in the minority. Those who seemed to be feeling more responsible, those subordinate positions, took all the chairs around the tables. The rest of us remained standing in the open area near the entrance door. I paid close attention to the proceedings. The priest who had given the inflammatory address was the chief of his quartier of his quarter, but the man who led the meeting was Charles de Guise, the Duke of Mayenne himself, appointed mayor of Paris by the League, and the Guise are called the League, incidentally, the League of the Faithful. I memorized names as one after another, the chefs, the leaders of the other 15 Quarters, Cartier, were called upon to report. There was Jean Boucher, Jacques de Surenne, and on down the list until he called on someone I knew, Father Georges Marquet. The priest who had been sitting with his back to me stood up, clean-shaven, square-jawed, with a thatch of gray hair. It was the priest from the church near the Porte Saint-Jacques. Was it my insecurity, or did he single me out with his intense, hostile eyes? Okay. Um, he then asked, okay, this is the Duke de Mayenne who speaks uh, in, in the end. He then asked each leader in turn what sort of provisions were laid by and how long each man thought those provisions would last. So this is this is information that uh, Jean is supposed to carry back to the, to uh, Henri de Navarre, along with the names of the, the uh, leaders of the quartier. Uh, the uh, and if possible, he's supposed to find out about the politique, who are the ones sympathetic to the actual king of France, Henry the Third, who uh, could be an ally possibly, of, uh, of uh, Henry of Navarre. The tenor of the questions and answers was aggressive and warlike. Morale was certainly high. A more partisan crowd was unimaginable. Their curses rained down upon Navarre and upon Huguenots in general. The uh, Cardinal de Bourbon, that uh, elderly Guise, was often evoked as the true monarch of France. I was repeating to myself the names of the says that I had just heard, mentally associating each name with the face and form that went with it, when the man next to me tapped me on the arm. Who are you, monsieur? I don't remember seeing your face before. I caught my breath in surprise at being accosted, but answered him readily, I'm Guy de Toule at your service, and the Duke's. From where? Toule in Lorraine, as my name says. I was laying on my best Eastern accent. Then you must know the Guise. Oh, yes, my family does. Personally, I have not had any direct dealings with them, but I'm a lo loyal partisan. I'm new in town and wanted to see how our faction is dealing with the present crisis. Ah, yes, of course. He seemed to turn his attention back to the latest question from a member of the audience on the other side of the room, but he glanced at me from time to time. The meeting broke up after more than an hour. I nodded to the man who had spoken to me, then set off southward on the Rue Saint-Martin. The night was overcast, and the street, though wide, was a medley of dark shadows, blackest near the house, houses on either side. I walked down the middle of the street. After all, there was no horse or ox-drawn uh, ox traffic at this time of night. I heard the sounds of footsteps behind me. 
but reasoned that it would be natural for any number of men from the meeting to be walking in the same direction I was. But as I went farther and a lone walker remained persistently behind me, I became convinced I was indeed being followed. I tiptoed over the cobblestones toward the left side of the street, then darted into the black hole that marked the entrance to one of the narrow streets intersecting Saint-Martin. I shrank back against the corner house, waiting and listening. The footfalls continued for three more paces and halted. I waited. There was no further sound nearby. Only distant voices and the shrieks and snarls of a cat fight down an alley. I waited. I remembered from looking at the map that these side streets ended in another wide avenue that led north and south. I could turn back south there and eventually come to the river. From there, I could work my way back to the bridge and thence to the Place Maubert. Gently, that's where the Cochon Bleu is, the tavern. Gently then, I eased away from the wall and crept farther into the blackness of the narrow street. All went well until I nearly reached a patch of paler darkness, marking the location of the cross street running north and south. I had my eyes fixed upon that pale patch, and so stumbled over an iron-bound wooden bucket directly in front of me that scooted over the cobblestones with a loud clatter. I froze again. Minutes passed, but I heard nothing. Perhaps I wasn't being followed after all. More cautiously still, I moved into the cross street and turned toward the Seine. So he gets back to the tavern, okay, without being further uh, disturbed or uh, or hearing anything further. And then uh, I resume his back in his room. I slept badly. I barred my door well and could hear uh, any movement on the stairs. It seemed to me that there was far more activity on the floor below than there should have been for a Sunday night. As soon as it was light outside, I rose and dressed, bleary-eyed, hiding the folded paper inside my durkin. This is what he has written down the information that um, he is going to have passed to Henry of Navarre. I clattered downstairs to find no one up. I unbarred the door and went out on the street. I walked along the Rue Maubert away from the Seine, and a few houses down asked a woman just leaving her house, Do you know a cobbler by the name of Peyrou? Ah, oui, monsieur. She pointed to a house three doors down. Go around to the back of that house, monsieur. Peyrou, the cobbler, has his workshop in the back. So he follows those directions. I waited quite happily, warmed by the sun, feeling safe for the first time in hours. At last, a man in a leather apron opened the rear door of the house and stepped out on the stone step, stretching and yawning. He looked at me, startled. I'm so sorry, monsieur. Have you been waiting long? I fear I overslept. No, monsieur. You you are monsieur Perrault, I presume? Yes, yes, that's me. What can I do for you, monsieur? And he gives the password, and uh, and uh, Monsieur Pirou replies. He glanced around us, especially at a window not far above our heads. There was no one there. Come, he spoke in a near whisper. He drew me farther back in the courtyard. Behind a grape arbor still covered with a curtain of withered leaves, that he drew me back behind, the great grape arbor, still covered with a curtain of withered leaves. Give me the document. I handed it over, and he placed it in one of the pockets of the leather satchel that hung from his waist, dangling over his abdomen. I could see a collection of needles, awls, thread, small brass nails, brads, and copper rivets. This will go out by runner today. Navarre will have it in less than a week. I thanked him and paid him handsomely, more generously now than I that I understood the dangers of his situation. He escorted me back to the corner of the house, 
then loudly said, Just bring those slippers in later today, monsieur. I'll do them in a day or two. I promised to return soon and went out into the street. <coughs> I realized how hungry I was and strode back to the Cochon Bleu through the Rue Mauvert, now becoming crowded with the morning's traffic. I was reaching for the inn's door handle when a heavy hand grasped my shoulder. You are Guy de Toul, a harsh voice inquired. I turned to see two burly men standing directly behind me and slightly on either side. Yes, I am. I continued affecting my eastern accent. Why? You are under arrest, monsieur. An icy shock quivered through my body. I broke out in a cold sweat and found myself voiceless, choking out inarticulate sounds instead of the question, why? But I knew why, and anything I might have said would be either would either have been trivial or harmful, putting me or someone else in danger. They jerked my hands behind my back and tied them tightly enough to cut off the circulation. I realized I was shaking uncontrollably. I looked upward and caught a fleeting glimpse of the innkeeper staring horrified out of the first floor window. He withdrew at once. Without a word, the men took me by both arms and marched me toward the river. I stumbled and nearly fell as we moved out into the Place Maubert, and when my captors jerked me back on my feet, I saw a dark shape shift position as it watched from the other side of the Place. It was the priest from the little church near the Porte Saint-Jacques, Father Georges Marquet. As the henchman dragged me across the bridge, I choked out a few words. Where are you taking me? To your death. Wow. wow. And that is the excerpt on, on Jean's uh, attempt at being a spy. Oh, my gosh. Uh, you're talking about a cliffhanger. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't expecting <laughs> that, you know. Uh, wow. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, he spends a good a few months in the Bastille as a consequence, but gets out uh, thanks to a friend of his that he had uh, met years years earlier and who is now a bishop, a Catholic bishop, and who had befriended him uh, long ago and, uh, and who is not on the side of the Guise, who realizes that the church is not well served by fanatics and that uh, Henry of Navarre is actually the legitimate king, and so he's going to help Jean convert uh, Henri to Catholicism, if at all possible. And, of course, the road is long because Henri does not want to convert, thank you very much. Uh, and so it's a long and arduous task. Uh, and Jean himself, of course, is still on the fence at this point. Uh, he's still a Protestant and still uh, not convinced that Catholicism is the road to follow. He has a choice before him, just as the king does. And so that's that's uh, what I have to say about this excerpt. Um, and, of course, he does get out. He is barely alive when they get him out. And all of this is historical, mind you. And uh, uh, then the king... Uh, helps him nurse himself and uh, helps to nurse him back to health and then continues. Uh, he can, The king continues his campaign against the Guise. There are more wars in which Jean serves as a knight and manages to avoid being killed, uh, uh, being wounded but not being killed, and, uh, uh, and so on. The story goes uh, accurately following history and very Interestingly, too, of course, uh, because the times were exceedingly uh, troubled, you might say. Uh, uh, and so, uh, Frank, any questions? Yeah, well, I, I just a, a comment more than a, uh, a a question or an observation, uh, you know, about your writing, which is just beautiful and and uh, wonderful. But you. Uh, uh, there's there's two aspects that stand out to me, and and one is the the, the macro, and and of course the macro, 
uh, the big picture items, uh, you know, having to do with the uh, the religion, um, you know, and the and the choice, the ultimate choice of of switching religions to get to the uh, the crown and and everything else. Yeah, these these are things that you're bound by as a writer uh, because you you know how the history uh, comes out and you got to follow the history and and everything else there. Um, the 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 micro is uh, is so impressive and that's where you get your license and you know your your uh, your artistic license and when he's in the um uh, when he's in the uh and now now nowadays you would say uh, uh well brothel you could still say brothel but when he's uh in, in, you know in in the brothel and the lady is in the in the bed with him um that uh, that whole uh, the way you detailed that um is uh, you know is is what I consider the micro. I mean, you're uh, you're laying out the uh, the moment to moment that happens there, and and it's just uh, you know I, I think it's beautifully done. The other thing that stands out to me is is that the uh, your concentration on on language or dialects that uh, that are important to to him as as being a spy, right? As being uh, and you and you talk about. Um, uh, you know, originally how he uh, he was ridiculed by the uh, by the masters and by his schoolmates. Um, uh, was it it wasn't Toulouse, but uh, his where his mother was from, to, uh, having the same dialect uh, <laughs> there. And, uh, you know, so, you know, there's a concentration on language. And then uh, again, a little later, there's a uh, there's a mention um, of uh, of, well, you sound like you're from this part of the uh, either, you know, uh, south or east. You don't sound it this. But there's that heavy concentration on on language or on, uh, you know, on the verbal, which, uh, of course, would be very important. To and I mean this is just an observation, and maybe it's an obvious, obvious observation to you, but as a listener, as a reader, um, <laughs> I'm fascinated that uh, you know of the detail that you have to go into on that particular, and, and you don't dwell on it, but you, uh, you you make sure that you you make it make it clear because language and dialect and and accent and whatever would be very important to to someone who is uh uh who is undertaking that kind of endeavor so uh right. I, I don't know I, it just stands out to me i was i was riveted and <laughs> i was uh, riveted by the whole thing but i uh, those those things stood out to me and uh it, you know you had that that moment of uh, erotica, right, in uh, in there, which is uh, it, you know was uh, not gratuitous at all, but it was uh, I thought it was very germane to the story, what was going on and what was uh, what was needed. Uh, brilliant, really, it's a it's a brilliant piece of writing, and uh, and you read it so beautifully. Um, very you know very impressed with the the whole the the uh, the whole cho- uh, well choice well the whole your your choice. Of the subject matter in this particular case, it's fascinating. I mean, it really is fascinating, and and uh, what a uh, you know what a book. I mean, this is uh, you know, I know this is one chapter or one uh, segment of uh, of a book, but this is uh, this proves to be a great book. Yes, right, uh, and uh, you're right about the language. Uh, as someone who has traveled widely in Europe, and you have. Uh, you know how important language is uh, to gather the information you needed uh, from the Ukrainians whose language did not speak. Uh, and so you had to find someone who spoke English even brokenly, uh, and many of them did, a surprising number, uh, and uh, which uh, is an important consideration when you go over there. Uh, will I be able to make myself understood? Will I understand understand them, uh, and so forth? So language is a dominant concern when you're in Europe, uh, especially for Americans who don't usually know another language well enough to be able to converse easily in that language, even Spanish here in San Antonio, where Spanish is spoken by uh, oh, a good I think it's a good 60% of the population now. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't realize it was that high. That's tremendous. Yeah, it's it's an enormous amount. And a lot of these people, of course, were raised here 
in this country, but they learn Spanish from their families. Um, and many of them speak broken Spanish, but they insist on speaking that Spanish, the Spanish, kitchen Spanish, you might say, that they learned uh, on the fly from uh, from their mother or grandmother uh, at their grandmother's knee, so to speak. Uh, and the language is sort of degenerating, uh, generation to generation, but it nonetheless persists. And so um, 60% of the population has Spanish surnames, I should say that. Not all of them know Spanish because for a long time you were punished in school if you spoke Spanish. Uh, the, the Angles were that insecure in their domination of, the, of this area that they uh, punished you if you spoke the language that uh, uh, had actually been the language of the country when uh, Texas was part of Mexico. So until 1840 or so, 1848 or something like that, I forget exactly when the Mexican-American War took place, um, that was the language of this area, Spanish. And uh, then when the, the Anglos came and took over by force generally, often, uh, or uh, by paying half or less uh, the price of the property they were taking over, um, they, uh, as I say, they were insecure enough to punish people if they spoke anything but English. Uh, and so there was a lot of persecution of the original inhabitants of this area. And the, uh, that is one of the points made in the book uh, entitled Before the Alamo. Before the Alamo, this was Mexico. Um, and... Uh, uh, and so that point is rather important in that book. Yeah. How did those people actually live? What happened back then? Uh, all of that is not taught in schools in Texas. Uh, history of Texas begins with the Alamo on the whole. And that is not true, <laughs> obviously. Right. And in my book, Before the Alamo, uh, intends to fill in the gap. Uh, at least from 1814 on, when my heroine is born. So, and, enough of another brilliant. Enough of that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, it's an, another brilliant book and an important book in the uh, you know to fill in some of the missing pieces of what we uh, of what we know. I, yeah, tremendous. Yes, and. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, and, uh, in this story, Jean's welfare depends on how well, how convincing he can be with his accent. Yeah. And obviously, uh, Georges Marquet, Father Georges Marquet, does not believe him. Uh, first of all, he, he uh, immediately says to the priest that he came through uh, through that particular gate. And uh, and that particular gate is the one that all the Southerners come through. And so anybody coming in that uh, that gate is automatically suspect as being somebody uh, who might be a spy. And uh, so Jean immediately identifies himself <laughs> as somebody who might be a spy, and then his accent continues to convince that priest that he is one. And uh, I think from that moment on, uh, the priest has has him followed and observed. Uh, so there was no way he could uh, could have slipped through safely uh, once he had contacted um, Peru and uh, and so on. And of course, Peru is uh, is also caught. Uh, that's a, a development that happens immediately afterwards. That. Uh, uh, the, the messenger, Peo, the uh, cobbler, is uh, caught and uh, tortured and ultimately executed. How much, uh, uh, not to interrupt, but how much uh, research did you do on the Guise, or was that institutional knowledge from your uh, your part, um, you know, because the Guise have a significant role in this book? Well, I, uh, first of all, there is an excellent biography of the uh, of Jean de Small, uh, straight biography. And I drew a lot from that. I also drew uh, from uh, books about Henry the Henry of Navarre, who became Henry the Fourth, 
And by the way, he was called Henry the Great or Henry the Good. Good. (laughs) He was unquestionably the best king France ever had. So, uh, so the irony of that is is also pretty thick. Uh, but a fanatical Catholic uh, named Ravaillac uh, jumped into his coach as he was driving. He, he was being driven down the street and stabbed him to death uh, in 1610. He became king in 1598 and uh, and died uh, by assassination in 1610. But he stopped the wars of religion. That's the first thing he did. And so uh, France was at peace and beginning to come back to prosperity by the time they assassinated him. Yeah, amazing. What a subject. And, uh, you know, and and a subject that has been dormant. Uh, You know, I know intellects and and folks are are generally, uh, you know, up on their, uh, their particular subjects of choice. But this is not a subject that uh, that the masses have, you know. Maybe if there's a, uh, you know, forgive me, the, the Game of Thrones type um, uh, uh, drama that uh, that takes the masses by uh, by storm, that uh, a uh, you know a, a real interest in this subject may hit the masses. But other than that, it, it, you don't you don't seem concerned about that. You're not placating anyone. You're not. Uh, you're not pandering whatsoever, and I, I imagine there has to be a, a certain freedom with that. You know, you're writing about what you feel like writing about and what you think is important, or uh, maybe where you either consciously or subconsciously feel there's a void in uh, in history. And even though what you're writing is uh, is fiction, it's historic fiction. And um, is uh, am I right there? Is there a, f- a certain freedom? Uh, when you don't have to worry about, uh, uh, you know, pandering and and whether a million people are going to buy this book or whatever, you don't you don't seem to have those concerns. No, <laughs> no, uh, it's long enough ago that I can take uh, liberty. I can tell the truth actually without without looking over my shoulder. Uh, that's one thing. Although uh, you can make analogies with what's going on between Russia and Ukraine right now. Uh, that we have a fanatic force uh, coming from Russia to to crush uh, another um, innocent, totally innocent country next door to crush and take it over, and to assassinate the uh, the president of that small country. Uh, and so there are many uh, there are many parallels that can be drawn uh, that are not too far fetched with current events, and. Uh, uh, and betrayal and torture and all the rest of it uh, is going on right now. Uh, so, uh, so in that way, this book is uh, is current because that that seems to be the human condition that we cannot exist for long without going to war over something. And uh, uh, I'm just editing a, a book called Human Brain Growth by a. a uh, Bulgarian uh, neurologist by the name of Yanko Yankov, whose book will be coming out shortly. Uh, and one of the things that he says in this book, because of course he talks about the beginnings of uh, of the race of humanoids, um, and we were first cousins and still are first cousins of the chimpanzee. Um, we have branched off considerably from the chimpanzee, but uh, in the beginning, uh, the human uh, uh, was the human being line was very close to in brain size and cap- uh, capabilities and so on. Uh, and uh, so, the chimpanzee is a point of reference uh, for uh, scientists of the human brain. And one thing that chimpanzees, one gene that is passed from chimpanzee mother to to child, is the warlike gene. Chimpanzees have wars, and they they usually have tribes of about 
oh, 20 to 25 individuals or fewer. They can be 15 individuals, but they can pick a fight with a neighboring tribe. And uh, if they win, they will kill off the neighboring tribe down to the last baby. Wow. They will have no mercy. And uh, so it, it seems to me we have definitely inherited that gene as far as, uh, as uh, the aggressor here, uh, Putin, is concerned. Uh, he's perfectly willing to kill the Ukrainians who have nothing to do with, uh, with his ideas and uh, with Russia or wanting to be Russian or anything of the sort. He's willing to kill those innocent people down to the last baby. He has, he has no scruple about that. Uh, uh, so, he do what he needs to do. That's what he thinks he needs to do, yes. Right. And the chimpanzees think the same thing. So <laughs> in that regard, he has not advanced beyond the ape. <laughs> he has an opposable thumb, but uh, but uh, not much more, uh, you know, <laughs> changes uh, as far as the war gene. His war gene is, uh, is there. Well, listen, Doc, uh, incredible book, uh, wonderful writing, and just what a— uh, yeah, riveting uh, book. Uh, the characters are terrific, and I, I, I'm so entertained. I feel, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm on on, uh, on the edge of my seat, even now. Where you're up, it's, a, it's a cliffhanger, even though uh, logic would uh, would kind of point to where uh, where we go, but it's still a cliffhanger nonetheless. Yes, well, at least the reader will wonder how is he going to get out of this one. <laughs> And it took him a while. He almost died. So, uh, and he was uh, he was interrogated, and of course, in those days, that meant torture. Yes. Um, they did not put him on the rack, however. That would have uh, injured all his joints in such a way that he would have been uh, never totally incapacitated. Uh, if all your joints are destroyed, you are a ruin. You, at the very least, or bedridden after that. So, the agony, uh, you know, uh, alone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you very much, and uh, and uh, just great, just a great job. Uh, the name of the book is The Choice, everyone, and um, it, it's uh, it's the sixteenth by Dr. Florence by him Weinberg or or Florence by him Weinberg. And uh, you've been listening to the Florence Weinberg Show. Doc, thank you very much. You're most welcome. And I do hope people will have a look at the book itself and uh, draw your own conclusions about it. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, I'm, I'm biased because uh, I'm so impressed with, uh, with her other work. And, but this is just uh, riveting to me. Everyone buy the book, The Choice, and, and buy Before the Alamo. Uh, Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on The Florence Weinberg Show.